Welcome to Curated Conversation, a podcast discussing real-world issues of equity, diversity, inclusion, and belonging. I'm your host, Shaliza Jamal, founder of Curated Leadership, an organization that fosters partnerships with individuals and companies to develop their knowledge in the areas of equity and diversity to build inclusive communities. Today, in episode 18, I'm joined by Nadia Bennett. Nadia Bennett, a proud Black entrepreneur, founded When Brown Girls Lead, an education consulting firm that promotes anti-racist learning environments through leadership development and mentorship to ensure all students are receiving the equitable education they deserve. As a former school teacher, Nadia's work focused on improving ELA test scores, student attendance, and teacher retention rates. Her passion for championing change was strengthened during her time at Dillard and Howard Universities, where she received her bachelor's degree and master's in education administration and policy. In addition to supporting anti-racist environments in education through her current work, she is also pursuing her doctorate degree. When she is not helping make impactful change across the country, Nadia keeps her mind primed by enjoying time with friends, reading, and traveling internationally. She has also been known to binge watch a show or two. That's me too, Nadia. I cannot watch one episode, so I appreciate that. (laughs) Welcome to episode 18. I'm really excited to have you here. How are you doing today? I am wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Thank you. We have so much in common, so I'm excited to just dig right in um, and ask you the first question, which is, tell us, tell myself and the listeners all about When Brown Girls Lead. What is your mission and values and vision for When Brown Girls Lead. Absolutely. So When Brown Girls Lead is a consulting firm, as you mentioned, that provides culturally relevant leadership development and mentorship for all leaders, schools, and districts that desire to be allies in creating anti-racist schools. I am a huge proponent of creating psychologically safe, authentic, and brave spaces for everyone in the K-12 sector. I would also say that I do have a particular interest in the development and support of uh, Black women in school leadership. And not, that's not only because I am a Black woman, but also because as of 2020, only 1.4% of superintendents in the U.S. are identified as Black and female. Right. And so that's a huge disparity. It's something that I'm doing research on at this time. And it is my desire to contribute to changing that number as much as possible. So I just want to do my part in giving back to the profession by developing leaders that are coming up behind me and helping schools to create anti-racist environments. Thank you. And I think that's so important because I talk about this work and, you know, Black, Indigenous and racialized or people of color, we often don't get the same mentorship as white folks do. And we may not even have the confidence to seek out that leadership or that mentorship. And that does provide a huge gap. And the numbers are very similar in Canada, by the way, in terms of leadership outcomes in, in education. And we see that that gap, right? And um, think it's really great that the work you're doing is preparing leaders from now, preparing and uh, those aspiring leaders to kind of get ready to lead because that's a very, very big gap, definitely for especially Black women. Absolutely, absolutely. And I do want to emphasize that 
I work with all leaders because sometimes the name of the consulting firm is misleading. Um, I work with everyone because we need allies in this work, right? I cannot do it by myself. And so that's why I'm very clear in saying everyone that has the same mission and the same desire, we can come alongside one another and create the change that we all want to see. And can you tell me what are some of the important things for educators and school leaders to think about when they are starting anti-racist initiatives and promoting diversity, equity, and inclusion in the classroom? There are a few things for <laughs> for people to think about. But before I jump into that, I want to give a little bit, if it's okay, about um, even how I got into this work. Yes, um, absolutely. I do, I do think that that is important for people to understand uh, kind of the passion behind the work that I do. So I have been an advocate for anti-racist environments since I was born. Uh, literally, I am just one of those people. Um, when I was eight years old, I was reciting Langston Hughes poems, uh, like just off the top of my head. I have always had a unique interest in that inequity, right? And as a child, I understood that there were inequities between Black and white people, even though I could not articulate it. And then I ended up going to a historically Black college for undergrad. I've been at both of my college, the colleges I went to were uh, historically Black universities. And in my freshman year there, they handed me the book, The Miseducation of the Negro. If anyone listening has not heard of that book, I highly encourage it. Uh, I read that book and became incredibly infuriated. <laughs> because it's the moment that I realized that all of my history and ELA books had lied to me and that it helped me to realize that every bit of work that I had read in the K-12 sector up until that time, it had been told from the white lens and a white perspective. And so you limit other people's history significantly when you only tell it from one lens Take, for example, respectfully, if someone were to ask me right now about the history of Irish Americans, and this is completely respectful, it's just an example, the only thing I could really talk about is St. Patrick's Day. It's the only thing that I'm very familiar with. We have that day off, you know, for K- in K-12 schools, et cetera. But I cannot tell you the history of Irish Americans, and I'm sure they have a rich history. But it's also not my job to know their history necessarily, right? Um, Or hasn't been, rather. Now, if we take that example and we liken it to white people historically being the only people to tell the history of Black people, this is why when you speak to them and you ask them about Black history, the only thing they can speak to is slavery. Some of them can speak to civil rights. Some of them can speak to Martin Luther King which is very limited in the rich history that we as African-Americans have. And so when that realization came to me, um, I felt as the book titled the book miseducated and I knew that I had missed something. So that's where this curiosity and desire and passion kind of started. And then when I was a teacher, I experienced being the only Black person on my grade team, 
when I was an assistant principal, I experienced being one of three assistant principals of instruction in a district that served over 10,000 students. There were only three assistant principals of instruction, yet the 70% or more of the 10,000 students were Black. When I became an executive director, I was the only Black woman on the executive team. And as you can imagine, the higher you climb, the more you experience microaggressions, forced smallness, sexism, etc. And so while I did share the mission and the, you know, behind When Brown Girls Lead, I also wanted to share the passion behind it so that people do understand not only am I working to educate and support leaders coming up behind me, but that I've lived it. Right. And I know it and I've experienced it and I've taught it. And that's where some of that passion behind it comes. So what's coming to my mind is like, you know, the tenant of critical race theory, but also just the idea of counter storytelling and counter narratives and representation. Those are the things that are coming to my mind, because, you know, as you talk about this single story and the single history that's told, oftentimes that also is internalized amongst young black and brown women right and and that also stops them from leading um but then they don't see their representation out there so that's internalized even more so i really absolutely appreciate that you that you shared that yeah absolutely and i also want to correct myself if that's okay i I said a second ago that it wasn't my job to know the history of irish americans that's not correct as an individual maybe but as an educator it is my job because if i'm going to have the expectation that white Americans know and understand the history of black Americans, then I should be also held accountable to understanding their history. So as an educator, I would agree that that is my job because I need to impart that upon the children that I'm educating. Um, And now I wanted to kind of fast forward to the question that you asked in regards to some things that educators and school leaders need to be thinking about when starting anti-racist initiatives. The first thing that I both share with schools and support schools to do is to know their data. I think that this is something that is overlooked in that most schools today, they have a process, a system of looking at data. What they don't necessarily do is look at data from the lens of race, sex, socioeconomic status, right? They don't typically break down their behavior data, their academic data, Uh, specialized services data by those numbers to fully understand the exact problem that they're trying to solve so that they might isolate it and narrow in on exactly what they're working towards. So I support schools in looking at, okay, what does your behavior and discipline data say? Are Black children suspended at a higher rate than their white counterparts? Are there more white and Asian children in honors and AP classes than there are Black? Do you lack diversity on your staff? Right. So we just want to start by just understanding the data, right, and and having an honest look at what you're dealing with as a school. The next thing schools want to consider is why do those disparities exist? And this question of why really should go deeper than on surface because 
if we're being honest, there's always an on-surface reason, a rationale for why something could be happening. But the whole point of this process is to get schools, school leaders to push deeper and understand what the deeper thing is in terms of, is there implicit bias playing out in your hiring practice? Is there implicit bias playing out when your teachers are recommending students for AP classes? So asking why multiple times until you get to what's really happening in the school. And then the last things is, last things are, excuse me, the leaders really taking responsibility for where the data is and then creating a plan on how they're going to course correct. Taking responsibility might look like you standing in front of your staff as a principal of the school, superintendent of the district. It might look like you standing in front of your staff and admitting we have a problem. This is what the data says. This is what we want the data to say. This is what we're going to do to get there. That is not easy, but it's necessary. And in my work, it doesn't matter necessarily how long the leader has been there, if that leader is the reason the numbers got to where they are. If you are the leader now <laughs> and the numbers are what they are now, then the integral thing to do is to take responsibility and, and change things going forward. And many of these issues are systemic. We see very similar issues in, in the Canadian school system. And so I think what you're saying is really key. It's, it's about that accountability piece and about that school leader really taking on their leadership and that accountability and having those responsible and courageous conversations to say, we need to look at this data and we need to do something differently because this is happening across the country or across the state or whatever it might be. So I appreciate you saying that because a lot of times we, we want to look at data or we don't want to look at data or we want to look at data before we do the work, but then they have to go simultaneously, the data mm -hmm. and the action, right? And I think that's a big thing that sometimes school districts miss, right, is, is that action piece. Um, now, you talk about the ways in which we can increase representation of Black and other underrepresented groups in school leadership positions, as well as how we can challenge the status quo in education along with maybe some actionable steps uh, that we can take to make it a reality for the future of our students. Can you share some of those three key ideas with us today? Yes, and I will share those ideas in a form of questions because these are the kind of probing questions that leaders should be asking themselves, right? So the first question is, does your teaching and leadership staff reflect the student body at a minimum. What I mean by that is if 15% of your student body uh, identify as Black, then 15 at a minimum, 15% of your teaching and leadership staff should identify as Black. That's the minimum. And I'm being very intentional about saying teaching and leadership staff because what you often find is that Black people will be appointed to certain roles such as the disciplinarian, right? So if a school has a dean role, you'll see Black people in <laughs> dean roles, uh, but you won't see them in teaching and leadership roles. And that's very dangerous. That's very dangerous. The reason that it's so dangerous is because it perpetuates this idea that non-Black individuals 
are the intellectuals. It perpetuates that, I'm just going to speak it as the numbers show, white and Asian individuals are more intellectual, are naturally smarter and brighter, et cetera, and therefore they are the ones that get to teach the children. Black people know how to manage and, <laughs> and discipline the children. So going back to the original question, again, that goes for Black, Asian, white, et cetera. If 20% of your student body is Asian, you need to be working real hard to make sure that 20% of your teaching and leadership staff are age, identify as Asian. The next question is, so leaders should ask themselves, is how have they been intentional about developing and supporting people of color for leadership? So the numbers are the numbers, and we know that these disparities exist, but how are you as the leader of the building going to take responsibility for being intentional about the numbers changing? So if you have a dynamic teacher um, whom identifies as a person of color and has the right values for leadership, go to that person and be intentional about asking them if they want to pursue leadership. That, you know, Ibram Kendi in his book, How to Be Anti-Racist, when he says, like, it's not enough to not be racist. One has to be anti-racist and being anti-racist comes with actions and expressing ideas against anti-racist policies. It's not enough to say, oh, I hire people of color when there's an opportunity for you to take the action to not only hire but go to someone whom you know is dynamic and has the right values and you know intellect and skill set, et cetera, to lead, to go to them and say, I want to see you in leadership. How can I help you get there? Why is that necessary? Because people of color and underrepresented, that's just not even people of color, women, any underrepresented group, they have not been taught <laughs> to aggressively go after these things necessarily because they have been taught that they are inferior. So sometimes it just takes, it's a matter of just opening the door and saying, I see you and I want to help you get there. Another question that school leaders should be asking themselves is, have they done a comprehensive assessment of the HR and hiring department to assess equitable hiring practices? If there is not a person of color on your hiring team, it's highly likely that people of color are being overlooked when they're reviewing applicants. Why? Because we all, and this is research-based, we all have a natural tendency and bias towards people that look like us. And so if we're not intentional about undoing <laughs> that bias and acting against that natural bias, we're just going to keep putting people that look like us into these roles. That's one of the big problems with the superintendency and the numbers that I shared earlier. The superintendent position is still overwhelmingly white and male. The reason is because when a white male superintendent is ready to step down and he's looking for someone to take over, he goes to the person that looks like him, that reminds him of himself 
10 years ago, 20 years ago, and decide I want to take this person under my wing and mentor them. That has to stop. I have been challenging my white male superintendents that I work for, that I work with to identify, identify a black woman. I know, I know you have one in your district. I know you have one in your leadership team. Identify a black woman that you know can handle this position and mentor her instead. Take that action to create the change. So really diving into your hiring practices and making sure that there's not implicit bias playing out in your hiring practices. Yeah. And, you know, that affinity bias, that tendency to prefer people who are just like you is so strong and people don't realize it. You also mentioned kind of in your three questions, this idea of representation. And I wonder if just for our listeners, you can speak to the importance of representation. You know, you mentioned, I think it was 15, if 15% of your student body are black, then 15% of your educators and leadership should also be black. Can you just tell our listeners or, or speak to this importance of representation and what it means? Absolutely. And I am going to borrow this quote from uh, Viola Davis. I think she said it so eloquently recently. She said, representation matters because children deserve to see a manifestation of their future self. Beautifully said, right? It matters for the same reason that people in America, Black people in America were overjoyed when Barack Obama became president of the United States and when Kamala Harris became vice president, it's because finally someone that looks like me is in that seat. And now I know it's possible for me, right? If he can do it, if someone that looks like me can do it, that means that I can do it as well. When people never see someone that looks like them achieve the things that they want to achieve, it's very difficult to manifest that future for yourself because you do not believe that it's possible for someone that looks like you. And that's, yeah, that's why it matters. Absolutely. I love that quote. And I think it's so important for people to to think about that. And then, as you said, to go beyond that representation to inclusion and thinking about your hiring practices. And I love what you said and that distinction you made between teaching staff and disciplinary staff and something people may not even think about. They might do unconsciously. So I really appreciate you bringing that out. In your work, you also discuss the four management skills that every school leader should have before embarking on effective anti-racist work. Can you walk us through those four skills and explain why they're so important in establishing anti-racist school environments? Absolutely. And these four things really speak to the fact that it is very difficult for a school leader to effectively move forward with anti-racism work if the school is not functioning well and the leaders are not yet effective in their jobs. So what does that mean? That means that if you have a leadership team and you have a variety of skill levels and maybe someone is a novice leader, maybe someone has been in a role for a couple of years but just hasn't you know, gotten the hang of it and they're having trouble with foundational leadership things, I would not even bring anti-racism work to them just yet because it's likely that it's going to flop, right? And that's the, one of the work. Race is such a sensitive and difficult topic to address and to do effectively. 
if someone tries it and it's not planned well, it's not executed effectively, it's not facilitated well, then it's a very easy way for people to opt out of doing their work. So before people began to push forward with anti-racism work, you want to make sure that all of your leaders know how to manage their priorities and their schedule. This is foundational, right? And that as a school leader, you have several priorities all of the time (laughs) and the job is very complex and one needs to know how to effectively manage and execute the priorities at a minimum. They also need to know how to be a both supportive leader, but also a leader that holds their team accountable. That's the perfect balance of leadership in that people know that my leader values my work, they see me, they support me when I'm in need, and they also hold me accountable to the things that need to get done. People want accountability. I've been in environments where my best teachers, I mean, the the teacher that I would like run through a wall for, a burning building for, (laughs) because I know that they're educating the children well. So you can pretty much have whatever you want because you are doing amazing things in that classroom. Those teachers are very frustrated oftentimes when there are other teachers that are not doing their jobs well. I think leaders really miss that. High-performing teachers want other high-performing teachers on their team, and they want their leaders to hold them accountable. And so a leader needs to be able to do to, to hold that balance appropriately before uh, moving forward with anti-racism work. And then the two other things are the art of having difficult conversations, because that's a big part of the job, and it's very difficult and it requires a very unique skill. It doesn't come to most people naturally. And so it takes some years of practice. It takes some intentionality because again, like it's literally a part of the job. I think it should be listed in job requirements for, (laughs) you know, application to be a school leader. Um, And lastly, being able to prioritize self-care to avoid burnout. If any of those four things are not being done well, my first suggestion to the school would be, let's get these things in order first. Because if we move forward with anti-racism work right now, it's going to flop in that. We really don't want that. And I I agree with what you're saying, because I feel like, you know, after the murder of George Floyd, organizations and school boards alike are running to make these anti-racist policies or action plans without a lot of thought and without a lot of socialization. And what I mean is that if they start to make these plans, even with their leaders and their educators, and the educators have no idea what's going on or they're not ready for it, it can also flop, right? So it takes some time to first provide that, I think, baseline knowledge to folks And ensure some of those other things are there, right? Like you said, the self-care is there. Like the understanding of the work is there. That the uh, educators are high-performing and they're being recognized before you sort of start start an anti-racist strategy and initiative. So I I appreciate you saying that because sometimes folks just want to start and it becomes the flavor of the week. You know, what am I client said to me, I feel like this is just a flavor of the of the month. And, and that's kind of how we feel because there's always different things going on. So 
really interesting to think about that. I'm wondering also, you know, you talk about your work with When Brown Girls Lead and, you know, your work really exemplifies this importance of creating psychologically safe and brave workplaces for women of color. And you kind of started telling us about that in the beginning. What does this look like in practice and how can it be achieved? Because I think the psychological safety piece is part and parcel of being able to have these difficult conversations and then being able to create a space where folks can speak up and speak out. So can you tell us a little bit about what, you know, what it looks like to have and to foster psychological safety and have a brave workplace? Absolutely. It looks like women of color being able to clearly state their beliefs, opinions, and concerns and show up as their authentic selves without fear of shame, retaliation, or humiliation. It looks like women of color having a seat at the table, but not being made to feel like they have to shrink to make other people feel comfortable at said table. I worked in in school buildings, K-12 school buildings for 15 years, as, as we mentioned. I was a teacher, assistant principal, principal, executive director. And I can say I have never felt psychologically safe, ever. Have I felt valued once I proved myself and my abilities as a leader? Yes, right? I absolutely knew that I was valued. I knew that my super, well, I'm thinking about one particular district, that my supervisor saw me and he appreciated the work. Can't ever say that I felt psychologically safe. Can't say that I didn't have to muster up a great deal of courage before giving my opinion on something race-related or something instruction-related. I had to muster up so much courage. And I remember moments of like being in meetings and even like my legs shaking under the table just to say something because I didn't know what the response was going to be. I don't want that for women of color coming up behind me. It's a it's an additional tax on us that people just do not understand. Like you don't understand it unless you exist in this place of what I refer to now um, as a researcher that came up with this idea of the triple consciousness. So the, the double consciousness comes from uh, Du Bois's book about being Black and American. But even if we look at, and I respect Du Bois, I think he's incredibly important to our history. But even if you look at what he's saying, he's speaking from the Black male perspective when he's talking about the double consciousness. So recently, researchers have said, wait, there's a triple consciousness because there's something about being American Black and female because even Black males, due to sexism, even Black males are respected differently and treated differently in work environments because they are male. Now, how do schools get there? That requires individuals doing their work. And I, I really encourage leaders of all color, all gender, to take up that mantle. If you do nothing else, do your work for the children that you serve. And when I'm saying your work, I mean 
your understanding and your development of race, race issues, uh, identity, and et cetera. If you just please do that for the children that we serve, but then also do it for the leaders under you, because it really does make a difference in regards to your influence and how people are experiencing you in the workplace. Absolutely. And, you know, some of the advice I also give to, to people who are looking to foster these psychologically safe places is to have conversations often, right? It could be even as practical as having it as an agenda item, but also being open to feedback. Sometimes leaders say, oh, yes, I want you to be open and share. But then when feedback is received, are they open to receiving it, right? Without reprimand, because like you said, you know, that psychological safety is not feeling at risk or like being reprimanded or being afraid to speak up. So really creating that as part of the fabric of the organization, I think that's really, really key. And so, you know, you've talked about all these amazing things. And I, I wonder if you, you know, had a magic eight ball, for example, uh, or a magic wand, what does the future of equity, diversity and inclusion in education look like to you? And what are some steps that you think we need to take to get there? This is an interesting question. And to answer it appropriately, I have to separate two things. I want to separate DEI work and anti-racism work. So the future of DEI in the world of education, I think that that looks good. There is a significant amount of effort from many thought leaders and practicing educators around creating a space of inclusion for people of color, for people of a different sexual orientation, you know, members of the LGBTQIA plus community. And they have a force and a backing that I do think is going to create the change. I also should mention uh, students with disabilities. There's a lot of work being done around there for them being represented and included. I unfortunately don't have the same positive perspective on the future of anti-racism work as it pertains specifically to Black women. Here's why I say that. In the research that I'm currently doing, I'm recognizing that Black women are disappearing in the numbers because of the language that we're using. So let's take the superintendent uh, position that I spoke to. 1.4% of superintendents as of 2020 identify as Black women. That number has been 2% or lower for 20 years. However, over those same 20 years, the percentage of females excuse me, the percentage of superintendents, uh, superintendents identify as women, that number has increased significantly, particularly over the last 20 years, I believe it's doubled. The percentage of women of color, in, which is inclusive of women that identify as Latinx, women that identify as Asian, that number has increased. So it's very easy for someone to say, oh, there are more superintendents of color you know, in 2020 than there were in 2010. We're moving in the right direction. However, that number for Black superintendents, Black female superintendents hasn't increased. 
And so when I say we're disappearing in the numbers, it's when it's all under one umbrella, people of color, women of color, which is also an important change that needs to happen. It can sound like there's change happening, but that change isn't actually happening for every woman of color. And we are, when I say we, those who identify as uh, Black women, we are 100% disappearing in the number. So we have to start looking at the intersectionality and separating those numbers to understand the data and understand why there needs to be a more significant push for Black women because our numbers are not changing. I think that's very key and very important and very important distinction, right? I think DEI is somewhat become mainstream and something that we can get our get our hands behind, get our heads behind, but we really we have to dig into the deep the deep work, right? And look at those numbers. Is there anything else you want to share with us about when brown girls lead or about the work you're doing uh, before we kind of wrap up our wonderful conversation today? Sure. I would love for listeners that are that either identify as Black women and are in leadership or that desire to be allies in creating the change that I spoke about on the podcast. I would love for them to know that I offer you know multiple services. I do one-on-one coaching and I come to the leader. It's not virtual. And I'm there with the leader on a regular basis. We go into classrooms. We practice difficult conversations, all of that. Um, I also offer a a significant amount of professional development around building anti-racist schools. And I support schools with the data aspects. And everything is very comprehensive. Uh, And it's, it's been effective for many, many districts, which is, you know, numbers I don't mind sharing. And then lastly, if they would like to get in touch with me, they can go to Nadia Bennett backslash podcast where they can sign up for a free resource they can also reach me at at when brown girls lead on instagram and nadia a bennett on linkedin wonderful thank you so much so folks all the information will be in the show notes uh any any last words or anything else you want to share with us uh, or for those uh, aspiring leaders whether they're educators or educators to be or women of color who are, you know, seeking out leadership uh, roles. Any advice you might have for them before we sign off today? Yes. The fact that I truly think that we have an opportunity to be a part of the generation that continues to get us to a better world. Mm-hmm. Uh, that happened in our lifetime. However, we can be contributors to the equality and equity that we should have experienced and that we would like to see. And I love that. You know, it's, it may not happen in our lifetime, but we're going to keep working on it for the future generations to come. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Nadia, for being our guest and joining us today in episode 18. And thank you to our listeners for tuning into this podcast episode of Curated Conversations. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate it, review it, share it, and subscribe at our website, createdleadership.com, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can also stay connected with us on Instagram at Created Leadership. And don't forget to download our free EDI glossary and subscribe to our newsletter for even more free resources on leadership, diversity, equity, and inclusion. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you next time on Curated Conversations.